Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Now joining us on the panel today is Paul Moyna, Professor of Immunology at Maynooth College and the Green Party TD, Nessa Horrigan. Paul, we were hearing there 196 new cases today, 107 of them coming from Dublin. So does that strengthen the argument that Dublin needs some sort of special treatment? People in the rest of the country are saying this is where the major issue is, lock Dublin down and leave the rest of the country perhaps a little bit freer. Yeah, well, certainly, Matt, uh, numbers are increasing, but I, I don't think lockdown is the answer. I think, you know, we've gone through a very long period of lockdown. We've exited at a really, really slow pace. Um, and in terms of, I think, what lockdown is, you know, there's enormous cost associated with lockdown. So I get worried when we hear that the strategy going forward is lockdowns, whether they be local or national lockdowns. I think we get some things from lockdown, but not as much as, I th- as, as you may think. I think as well... Sorry, did we not get to a situation where we had almost nearly suppressed the virus in the community, that very, very low numbers, then we started relaxing the restrictions, the numbers start going up, and we're still planning to even further relax the restrictions on things like pubs, and at a time when the colleges go back over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, you're absolutely right there, Matt, but I think in terms of, you know, there are elements of lockdown that are very, very effective, but many of those are the things we were doing actually before lockdown. So things like social distancing, good hygiene, they're very, very effective. So I would argue in terms of they're almost as effective as lockdown itself. I think at some stage there's going to be sort of a balance sheet done in terms of looking at, you know, there's a trade-offs associated with lockdown. So obviously, okay, you get some gains, but in terms of what it costs you both economically, but also I really worry in terms of health. So for example, if you look at like each year, we've, I think, 43,000 newly diagnosed cases of cancer, 9,000 deaths from cancer. So in the first six months of the year, like how many of them did we miss? The effects on mental health. So there's enormous costs associated with lockdown. And I think this reliance on lockdown is not a good one. I think we have to move forward where we have to live with this virus and live with this virus over a prolonged time period. And I think we need to plan strategy accordingly. So, Nasa, what's the thinking in political circles and particularly amongst the government parties at present in relation to the advisability of lockdown and taking into account the other issues that Paul has just highlighted? Well, I don't think anyone takes, you know, implementing a lockdown anything but very, very seriously. It does have a huge impact on people. It does have a huge impact on on the economy, on people's mental health. However, we have instigated lockdowns before in Kildare, in Leash, in Offaly. You know, Dublin is not an exceptional place. Um, if lockdown is what is advised by NEFET or, or, you know, within the guidelines, I think it is something that should be considered, even though it is a very serious action to take. I think the level of community transmission, unlike in Kildare, the level of community transmission we're seeing is incredibly serious. However, what I would say is that because of the nature of how, you know, we operate in this country and, and the size of Dublin and the impact it has on our economy, 
uh, the lockdown there would probably be of a, of a slightly different nature. There are huge amounts of people who come to Dublin for things like hospital care um, and, and that would have to be factored in. How would it really work? There's a huge amount of people who commute into Dublin for work. So it, it, is, it is not that Dublin is exceptional, but it's certainly more complex to implement lockdown there. You mentioned there whatever Neffet recommends. Now, are we getting to a situation though that they very much called the shots during the lifetime of the last government? But will this government look at things differently given that we have moved on a number of months, we have the economic crisis that is ongoing, and will this government perhaps be a little bit more cautious in taking recommendations from NEFET in the event of a second large outbreak? Well, I think that in, in the last month or two, it hasn't been that every single diktat, or in fairness, NEFET is not you know, um, issuing diktats, but uh, the, the discussion between the government and NEFET is one that is give and take and the government doesn't necessarily take on board every single um, suggestion that is made. Uh, I think in this case, uh, a major outbreak in such a highly populated area is a very serious thing and we should be taking, you know, the medical advice very seriously. Yeah, but is medical advice all? Is NEFIT now the right body to be making all of the recommendations or does it need to be wider, Paul, in its thinking and even in its composition to take all of the other issues into account? I wouldn't say man, it needs to be wider. I think there's really a place for some entity, sort of a counterbalance to NEFET. So, you know, expertise, whether it be in terms of health economics, economics, you know, scientific uh, input, and begin to look at, so when politicians get, you know, the recommendations and advice from NEFET, there's also a counterbalance there in terms of what that's going to cost. So that there's an alternative and, and then politicians can then make the decision. But I think there needs to be some countermeasure at this stage because at the moment we're sort of going down with a very narrow stream. Yeah, but also the recommendations are coming. A lot of people get confused by them as to why certain things have been recommended and other things are not. For example, you're going to be able to, for Monday week, go and have a few pints in a pub without having to have the meal, yeah. but you're going to be restricted in the number of people so you can actually bring into your own house. Mm. Now, where does that make sense? So, so it doesn't really, and I think that's like that's a really good point. Uh, and I think you know we're looking at very confused messaging uh, at the moment, and you know we're looking at you know collecting receipts and things like that, which in terms of contribution to public health serves no purpose really at all. In terms of opening of pubs, again, I would have foreseen you know you know justification in terms of maybe opening pubs earlier than this because we already have pubs open, as you mentioned. Okay, you have to serve food with that as well. But I don't really see the reason. So if you look at all those pubs that have opened, there have been very limited number of... Uh, but what know, about the restrictions on home visits, that you're only allowed to have six people come to your house from three different yeah. households? And there's people looking at things like deferred communions and confirmations, which are now taking place, and still not been able to bring family members along for a small gathering. Yeah, I think the thinking behind that, Matt, is that you know there, there is increased spread within households. So I think that's an effort to try to limit spread within uh, households. Um, so I think that's the, the basis for that. But I, I think it comes back very simplistically in terms of the sort of two things in terms of moving forward. One is this bringing back this sense of personal responsibility. Um, and whether that be, you know, in terms of social distancing, hygiene, and then so that we all have that responsibility and you need that sort of social solidarity. And I think we're, we're losing that a little bit and I think some of that may be attributed to some of the mixed messaging and, and then that needs to be supplemented with state responsibility, which is the testing and tracing. Okay, well, the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, today was issuing this statement in relation to personal responsibility, but if that has been lost, how much of that is the responsibility of poor messaging from this government? 
I definitely think that we have a huge job of work to do in terms of public confidence in, in the messaging around COVID. Uh, I, I don't think there's any point in suggesting that that's otherwise. Um, I see some of the recommendations at the moment, you know, to to change, let's say, the, the who can come into your house from six people from three different families to six people from two different families. To be honest with you, I think that's a kind of a nuance that, very, you know, it's very hard to communicate. And therefore, when you hear people talking about lockdown, perhaps some of the reason that, that we go to the, the phrase lockdown is because that's a very okay, clear message it, that but, people might understand. When it understand. comes to personnel, is Micheál Martin communicating as well as Leo Varadkar did when he was Taoiseach? Is Stephen Donnelly commuting, com communicating as well as Simon Harris did? Because we had Alan Kelly yesterday, the Labour leader, making quips about Simon Harris being the Emeritus Minister for Health, that people are still listening to him for advice rather than listening to Stephen Donnelly. I mean, I don't think it's helpful to do a scorecard of of relative, you know, ministers and and who they how they might perform. I think it's it's certainly true that we are not communicating well enough because people are confused and and there is definitely a lack of confidence in in how we are moving forward in terms of the COVID crisis. So we need to do better. Whether or not that you can lay that at the door of, of specific ministers or, or particular people, I'm not, I'm not sure that's useful to do. Paul, what about the testing issue? Because we've also discovered now that after all the fuss about failure to test in the meat plants, which then had to be addressed because of outbreaks in the meat plants, that the testing now seems to have moved away from there again to other areas. What do you make of that? Well, it's a major concern because obviously meat plants are one of the high risk uh, areas that sort of seeds many sort of the, the spread. Um, I think it's important to say, first of all, when we talk about testing, to be aware, Matt, there's two streams. There's one in the hospital setting, which is really very, very efficient. And I think, you know, the medical scientists deserve a lot of credit for that. But we really have struggled with the community testing. We've essentially subcontracted it out to a private company. Um, back in the middle of the summer, when the numbers were quite low, um, we were told that the Joint Oireachtas Committee for COVID, you know, that we had an agile, robust system. But I looked at the end I of July. How many tests a up week? To up to 100,000 per week. Are we getting anywhere near that? Well, we're not. But uh, I always remember on the 30th of July, that's when the, you know, we had, I think, about 80 cases suddenly out of nowhere and that related to Kildare. And I looked at that day and we were made, rather than testing 15,000, we were testing around 4,000. Six days later, I would have expected that to be a red flag and say, OK, we have to go in and mass test. Six days later, we were testing 2,000 and most of them were in the hospitals. And then two week, then a week later, we were back up to 4,000, but nowhere near to 15,000. So I think we need to use testing. We need to be preemptive in terms of identifying early signals in those high-risk areas. A failure on testing, perhaps, Nessa, that has to be addressed. We've had months to prepare for this. Yeah, and I think, you know, moving into the winter, we do need to up our testing. We, um, look, there has been a surge this week and there is still testing going on in meat factories. It's it's the serial testing that has been paused until next week. There was um, a request for 21,000 tests in two days during the, this week. And certainly there was a ramping up of testing. Um, there is 700 jobs um, uh, advertised for swabbing. There's 500 jobs for contact tracers. So going into should the winter... there should have been done weeks and months ago? I agree, yes. Well, look, moving into the winter, there, we are anticipating that there'll be an upsurge hopefully that there won't be. Um, but, you know, there needs to be more robust and rigorous testing. OK, Paul, just to finish with you, there are some worrying trends internationally. If you add up all the cases declared on Wednesday for the European Union and Britain, it's bigger than the number of cases that were declared in the United States. There's a big surge in France and Spain. So what does the government need to do in its plan for recovery and resilience next week? What does it need to announce? 
Well, certainly, you know, I've heard sort of indications, you know, they're going to move to sort of a coloured warning system. But I'd like to see more than that, because to me, that's just really replacing sort of numbers in terms of the phase, you know, exit from lockdown with sort of coloured sort of warnings. Um, I'd like to see sort of a more, you know, a long term strategy, a long term strategy in terms of how we're going to live with this virus over the next at least year, maybe two years. Um, again, we need to get the public back on board here in terms of the personal responsibility. We definitely need to get our testing and tracing. Uh, personal responsibility working. for what? In greater social distancing, yeah, wearing so, of masks? So, so social distancing, wearing masks, all those things, Matt. You know, and again, I think you know, we've been incredibly successful over the first you know, three, four months. I, I don't really blame people you know, when I look at younger people especially. I think but can you do all those things at the same time as getting people back on public transport, back into work in offices, even getting on airplanes? I think you can. Like, you know, fleeting interactions with people isn't such a big risk, but it's those sort of prolonged interactions at close quarters with people, they uh, are high risk. But, but definitely coming back, Matt, you know, our testing and tracing system, that's one of the main sort of elements of our armory. So we, we need to get that up and running. Thank you very much, Paul. That's it for part one. Coming up, has Brexit knocked COVID off the agenda for businesses around the country? And later we'll have singer Mary Cockton on our pandemic number one. Welcome back to The Tonight Show. Now, George Parker, political editor with the Financial Times, broke the story at the weekend of the British plans to rewrite the withdrawal agreement. He joins us now. George, a tough day of talks and the EU is taking a hard line and we'll get to that in a moment. But what is Boris Johnson and his government playing at? It's a good question. It's a, it's a, route, it's a route which none of us really expected to, to happen. Um, it seemed unnecessary to a large extent because talks between the UK and the EU on the details of the Northern Ireland settlement seem to be proceeding perfectly OK. But at some point over the summer, I think Boris Johnson finally came to terms with the reality of the deal that he struck back last October, the reality being that he's effectively put a big trade border down the Irish Sea. He turned up in Northern Ireland last month and said that there'll be a border in the Irish Sea over his dead body. And since then, the government started to take a tougher line on this issue, culminating in this very controversial piece of legislation, which would effectively override the treaty that Boris Johnson signed and, of course, would break international law. So they've brought themselves onto this, uh, this precipice. And the question is, where, where do they go from here? Well, indeed, how does he expect to be able to do a deal with the European Union over trade? Indeed, how is he going to expect to do deals all around the world if the UK government has a reputation for doing deals and then reneging on them? Well, that's exactly the question that's being asked, not just by people in Brussels, but you know, around Europe and even around the world. It's a remarkable piece of statesmanship by Boris Johnson that he's managed to unite the European Commission, um, Eurosceptic Conservative M MPs, and indeed Michael Howard, the former leader of the Conservative Party, saying, you know, why would anyone trust us ever again? A sort of Eurosceptic. Former Prime Ministers, and even Nancy Pelosi, the, the Democratic uh, Speaker in the, the House of Representatives in America, saying there won't be a trade deal with America because of this, if Boris Johnson sees this through. So, He's united this remarkable coalition against what he's done. It's an extraordinary piece of work. And what about relationships with Ireland? Because Leo Varadkar went out of his way to help Boris Johnson out of a bind last October. His reward now, it seems, could be a situation whereby the very thing we don't want on this island, a hard border, could result. So how are British relationships with Ireland going to be mended? Well, they're, they're difficult. And the Prime Minister had a conversation with the Taoiseach earlier on today, and it was a, 
it was, or I think, sorry, last night, and it was a very tough conversation because Boris Johnson insists that what he's doing is intended to preserve the place of Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom and therefore to uh, make sure that the peace process is honoured. But on the other hand, if he follows this through and if relations break down with the European Union, it obviously raises the prospect the European Union might have to have border checks on the island of Ireland, which again would be in direct contravention of the Good Friday Agreement. So Boris Johnson's playing for very high stakes here. And um, you know, the, the, on the face of it, the answer is that he appears to be taking such provocative action that he wants to blow up the trade talks and to leave without a trade deal at all at the end of the year. And finally, Other George, is it all a bluff? He actually is looking for a way out. Is it all a bluff or is he actually mad and bad enough to actually blow everything up? Well, it's a question that we, we don't know the answer to. There are certainly people in Boris Johnson's inner circle, most notably Dominic Cummings, who's this iconoclastic chief advisor to the Prime Minister, who think that Britain would be better off having a clean break with the EU and strike off on its own and being able to do its own thing, in which case I think the Northern Ireland situation would become a lot more precarious. But there are other people who say, well, hang on a sec, there's an economic interest for the UK in getting a deal with the EU, its biggest trading partner. There's also a question of competence. You know, Boris Johnson hasn't handled the coronavirus outbreak very well. Will people start to think he's a hapless prime minister who can't get a, a deal, a trade deal with our biggest trading partners? And there's a third element which is coming very strongly into play now, which is the future of the United Kingdom, not just Northern Ireland that we've just been discussing there, but also the question of Scottish independence. Scotland, as you know, voted overwhelmingly against Brexit. If Boris Johnson ends up with a very chaotic exit from the European Union, okay. that will bolster the case, I'm sure, for Scottish independence. Thank you very much, George Parker of the Financial Times. Joining us now in studio, Matt Carthy from Sinn Féin and Green Party TD Nasa Horrigan is still with us. But Matt, I'll start with you. Is this... Britain's difficulty, Ireland's opportunity, is this going to start moving us towards the potential for United Ireland? Well, it is actually, but that's not to understate the huge challenges that the whole island will face if the current trajectory, um, which I have to say, I would guess at the moment we're talking 50-50 deal or no deal, and that's odds that I never would have thought. I would have always thought that regardless of the machinations, you know, the most likely scenario is that we would end up with a negotiated settlement that mightn't be perfect, just as if as the withdrawal agreement last year wasn't perfect. But to answer your questions, um, question in terms of what we now need to be doing, we now need to be preparing um, very robustly for a no-deal um, scenario. Because and what's it's, involved it's in likely, that? Because well, in the immediate term, we need to put in place as many economic protections as possible and... Over the last number of years, we've had lots of conversations in terms of some of the sectors that need to be protected, agriculture being a very obvious one, considering you know beef sector, for example, 90% of our exports um, you know, end up in, in Britain or through Britain. Um, and Do you think um, the British are going to take advantage of that, try and divide us from the European Union, knowing that we have this reliance for sections of our economy on Britain? Well, one of the strategies under Theresa May was to do just just that. Um, it, it's, it appears to me that the British strategy at the moment um, is to try and either drive a very hard bargain that essentially undoes what was was secured in the withdrawal agreement, particularly around issues like fisheries as well, um, to try and um, get a substantive deal or to settle for a no-deal scenario. So, as I say... We need to be prepared for all of that. We're going to need, actually, 
an awful lot of European support and European financial support if that happens. But yes, and this is an important point, yes, we need to be preparing for the constitutional conversation as we in Sinn Féin have been calling for since 2016 okay. because this could happen very quickly. Okay, but then what about the situation with the border, NASA? What are we going to do? Because if we have to protect the single market as members of the European Union, surely we have to police the movement of goods across the border. I, I think we are at that stage and I, I actually I, I disagree with Matt slightly in, insofar as I don't think it is 50-50 no deal. I, I think it's more than likely now that we're, we're looking at a no deal. I think it's more than likely that our October budget should include not only a no deal but an acrimonious no deal. Um, and I, I think that couldn't be any more serious for those who live on the border and those who, who cross it. I, I did it myself for five years going up and down to, to Queen's. And I, I simply can't imagine what that will be like for those communities um, to see a return and a rollback of all of the, pro pro the progress that we've made in, in terms of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, we have never been able to get a... a a straight answer from the British about what a policing of that border would look like. Um, we've heard from them that it could be in different locations, it could be back from the border, who will do it. Uh, we know that they didn't even want the EU to have an office in Belfast to implement that. So I think that's very serious. There's a second issue, though, that has emerged today, which I, I, I do think is serious and maybe hasn't been given enough um, forethought, is I noticed that the European Commission Vice President Maris Sefovic um, has said that this is a, a huge breach of, of the withdrawal agreement and international law and that it is actionable, that it is legally actionable. Now, that means that even if there was an acrimonious no deal, we could be entangled in legal action with the EU against the UK for years to come. And I think that, for Ireland specifically, would be very difficult and mean so that any further agreement afterwards... We, we could try and reason with Boris Johnson. However, <laughs> exactly, exactly right. This does not seem to be a set of decision making that is based in logic or based even in the best interests of the people of their own country. This isn't a question of Brit bashing, but maybe it's Boris bashing. I mean, how much sympathy would you have for Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney, who dealt with him previously, who did a deal in good faith, who got an international treaty effectively signed with him, which he's now trying to tear up? Well, I don't think it's a matter of having sympathy for anybody, but clearly, you know, nobody in this island should be surprised at the prospect of a British government breaching a previously agreed deal. They've been doing it for centuries. In fact, even the Good Friday Agreement that we often talk about, you know, there are several aspects of that agreement that have never actually been implemented by a British government. What was surpri surprising and, in fact, astounding this week is that a British minister would actually stand up in the House of Commons and state categorically that their intention is to breach international law and to renege on a previously agreed deal. So that's where the new dispensation um, came from. So I think from from an Irish point of view, I think don't think this is a time to feel sorry for ourselves. I think this is a time to ensure that we have the preparations. But what can we do? In, and what, the in, preparations, are those preparations going to have to include us getting ready to police the border? No it needs us getting ready to get rid of the border because there can be no countenance. The reason that the Brexit talks were stalled in the first place is that because there's international recognition that we can't put in place any physical manifestation of a border in this country. So because then how the do we go to the other end of what your equation is? So we go to the Good Friday Agreement and we ask the people in the North in the first instance, which union do they want to be part of? Do they want to remain part of the European Union as they mandated in the Brexit referendum? or do they want to remain part of this ever-increasing dysfunctional United Kingdom? That's how much you think of that idea. 
I, I think that no matter what your position on unity and, and Northern Ireland and Ireland is, nobody thinks that this current situation, you know, is something to be taken advantage of or to be lauded. It's a horrendous situation for everybody. I'm not sure adding the chaos of of, of, of an yet another vote, yet another binary vote, which is how we got into this, you know, problem to begin with, um, it will necessarily help the situation. I do notice from um, the coverage of, of British media is that uh, Nancy Pelosi's statements are being taken very seriously. So it may be time to, to leverage some of that American goodwill and, and but what use if Trump their is re-elected as president. Maybe if Biden's elected, yeah, happy days for yeah. us. But if Trump is re-elected... Then we're into a situation of trying to reason with President Trump, which is similar to trying to reason with... And he Boris may Johnson. take but Boris Johnson's side. Because the, the Houses of Congress actually have the final say in relation to trade deals struck by the United States. And that's why Nancy Pelosi's um, statement was um, so emphatic. So regardless of the presidential outcome, um, I think, and I think it was a huge testament once again to Irish America, they're often derided um, as, uh, as an entity, even in this country, but they clearly saw the threat of what the British government were, uh, were proposing this week. And they used their political muscle in order to ensure that a very emphatic message came from the United States. And in fact, the only message that the British government are probably going to listen to um, in, this, in this week and in, in the coming period. So look, I, I don't know how this is going to play out, but we need to be very prepared for all eventualities. But what's involved in that? Because Nasa, you mentioned the possibility in the budget of additional funding. To do what? Well, it, it, I suppose it's less about additional funding and it's more about projections on growth. I mean, we were hoping to see uh, an increase of 6 to 8% in growth next year, even with the COVID um, crisis. I suppose that's what a lot of the, the stimulus packages were about and the wage subsidies. Brexit throws a level of chaos into the mix there that means that that 6% is probably very ambitious. So we kind of have to double down on, on, on the support we were already giving people. How do you think this is going to change the budget arithmetic? Oh, uh, no deal. Brexit has hugely um, significant implications and dangerous implications. And that's why we need to, you know, we need to look at this in a very realistic framework. We need to try and minimise the damage that Brexit would do. The fact, all of the complications of Brexit um, in many respects would be there um, regardless of what the constitutional situation that were in this island, because we're talking about our nearest neighbour, our largest trading partner, the country that stands between us and Britain. But all of those complications are multiplied by the fact that we have two states on this island and the fact that one of them voted to remain part of the European Union and the British government is trying to usurp that democratic mandate and has usurped it. We tried to minimise that through the withdrawal agreement. And again, they're trying to usurp and renege on those commitments. So we need to have big conversations. And this isn't a time to start are talking about um, recklessness or, or anything else. This is a very important part of the discussion that we need to have. Thank you very much, Matt Carthy, for being with us. And Nessa is staying with us. So how will a hard Brexit impact on Irish businesses, given it could be coming as soon as January? We're joined now by Danny McCoy of IBEC. So, Danny, Brexit, now on top of what's happening with COVID, how serious is this latest development for Irish businesses? Well, Matt, you know, um, Brexit we knew was coming from the 31st of January, given that Britain had left the European Union. And what they're calling the transition period is really still a negotiating period. So businesses are now faced with the certainty that they won't have the transition period they were promised, which was two years. You know, we were setting off from the port that was leaving the EU for Britain, but we'd know the future agreement and we'd have two years to get ready for that. That transition period is gone now. 
So the certainty is that we're going to be into a hard Brexit territory. Whether that's fully a no trade, as we're saying, which is actually World Trade Organization rules, or some kind of uh, light or skinny trade deal, as we're calling it, doesn't really matter that much. You know, obviously, the worst case is the World Trade Organization rules. Um, but I think we're fairly certain now that we're in for a bumpy ride at the start of 2001. But sorry, Danny, uh, 2021, rather. What sort of bumpy ride? What does that actually mean? Is it that exports and imports will dry up or that if they do continue, they're going to be at a much higher cost? Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. No, it won't dry up um, because the demand is there for the products and these are long-scale uh, contractual arrangements we have. However, the uncertainty we have right now is that we don't know whether there'll be tariffs and how much those price increases. Effectively, a tariff is a tax. So how much extra taxes will be put on our trade? But for certain, and the government has indicated this, we will have a new arrangement and so there will be more customs checks, more administration costs. So for business, their costs are going to go up and they may not have the same demand because they'll be more expensive relative to other parts of the world where Britain might have trade deals with other jurisdictions. Everyone's concentrating on the exports and with good reason, but how significant might the problem be with imports as well? I think imports are generally dealt with with smaller, medium enterprises to get into that domestic market. And I think a vast majority of SMEs just aren't ready for Brexit. Uh, it was impossible to know the exact details, but we have a couple of months now to get the paperwork right, so to speak, but we still don't know the prices we'll be charging. So that uncertainty, I think, is really going to compound some sectors that are being hit by COVID fairly hard as well, whereas other sectors have the capacity to deal with this kind of shock. They have some sense of what's coming and are also doing rather well during the COVID era. But we have this double whammy now of COVID as well as Brexit. And what are the major issues that need to be addressed by government now in supporting businesses, particularly the likes of Dublin city centre, which seems to be crumbling in the absence of tourists, and also the office economy? I think the one thing we knew about Brexit, if it was going to be a hard Brexit, independent of COVID, is the government was going to need to have some support networks for businesses that are impacted or effectively shut out in the case of a really collapsed deal. And the temporary wage subsidy scheme that we put together during COVID is that type of scheme. So it needs to be extended now in the employer wage support structure uh, scheme we have. That will be needed for a hard Brexit as well. But we also need the economy to, you know, to be fully functioning in the sense that we try to live with COVID, but allowing people back into their offices in particular, 
because the whole ecosystems and central business districts, particularly in Dublin and the major urban areas, are really being hollowed out dangerously now. And that could give rise to further knock-on effects of collapsing businesses and in terms of, you know, what are we going to do with the commercial property that might be impacted as well. Danny McCoy of Ibex, thank you very much for joining us here on The Tonight Show. And more on trying to achieve economic recovery after the break and also Mary Coughlin on topping the Irish charts during the pandemic. Welcome back. The Green Party TD, Nasa Horrigan, is still with us. And Alan Barrett, director of the ESRI, joined, ESRI, joins us now. Alan, can you start by explaining, people are now talking about this new thing called a K-shape recovery for the economy. Hmm. What in the name of God is that? Okay, well, so just, just when we got used to V's and U's, so it's, it's probably easier to explain it but by getting what the V-shape uh, recovery was. Uh, so this is what we had all hoped at the outset uh, of, of the crisis, that you'd have a sort of a severe drop down in economic activity, but then it would bounce back up again. Uh, and then following the, the V, there was the theory it might be a U, where you sort of bottom out for a while. And th there's been the sort of the, uh, the, the range of alphabets have, have been thrown about this. In some ways, it, really what the K uh, tries to get a handle on is this idea that talking about a, re a recession in sort of, you know, as a single experience is actually very, very uh, misleading. Because the reality, of course, all recessions are the same, and this one included. Various groups have a completely different experience of the recession. So what we have at the moment is we have some groups who are actually doing reasonably well. We can talk about sectors um, or individuals, and of course there are some groups in, and, and sectors that are doing really badly. So I think intuitively we all knew this, okay? We all knew, for example, that there were certain businesses that had simply closed down. So there was all the, you know, the pubs and the restaurants and everything like sector. that. All of those. Whereas any industry uh, like mine, for example, where people could simply go home and do the work at home, well, they carried on quite well. So I think it's that intuitively we knew this, but when the CSO Sorry, does that mean we're going to have a widening gap in Irish society this is one of the haves and have-nots? Absolutely. This is one of the great difficulties because the, the, when the CSO brought out the, the figure, so it was the, the um, quarterly national accounts for the second quarter, you saw the numbers there. So for example, um, the sector that includes hotels and restaurants was down, the output was down about 30%. Industry had actually grown over this period. So that's it by sector. But of course, the other thing we know about working from home and what this recovery has done is there's a very, very high correlation between your level of education and the likelihood that you could work at home. And really what that translates into, a lot of people uh, in sort of various sectors like you know, finance and a range of other things, um, you know, they, they can use information technologies, they could do their job somewhere else. So internationally what we're observing is that this was a is a recession that's really, really tougher on lower skills. And what about also on younger people? Because even those people getting professional qualifications or getting degrees are finding nobody's willing to employ them. Yeah, it's, it, it's always one of the heartbreaking things of any recession, that if you arrive into the labour market at the point uh, where jobs are very, very scarce, obviously it, it's, it's a sort of a blockage for you. Uh, and, and research has shown actually that, and I don't wish to be overly depressing about this, that that scarring effect can actually follow people for quite a long time. One additional point that should be made here, traditionally, of course, in Ireland, uh, emigration was an exit route. So if you couldn't get your first job in Ireland, you might be able to get it somewhere else. And very often those folks uh, came back. So that's another avenue that in a sense has, has been cut off. So it is a tough, tough recession for younger people and less skilled people. And something I just touched upon with Danny McCoy there just before the break as well, there's a fear now that many businesses which had kept open with the temporary employment subsidy 
are now seeing that money with the new replacement scheme, less money and more stringent terms for it. And now we're suddenly seeing a lot of other businesses that might have just been tipping over now starting to close. Yeah, again, one of the harsh realities, uh, again, when the, when things like the temporary wage subsidy were, were put in place, I think that the hope originally had been that there would be an, enough money and it would be available for long enough to keep these folks in operation. Now, in fairness to the government, they did extend this uh, for as long as possible, uh, but there's only so much that can actually be, be done. One of the problems here, of, of course, is that we, we, we don't really have sort of a good a, a sense of, of how financially uh, resilient all of these businesses are. Uh, some colleagues of mine at the Institute, uh, along with colleagues in the Department of Finance, are actually working on this issue to try and get a, you know, a better handle on, on, on the vulnerability and how many businesses are, are likely to fail. But again, it's another one of the sort of the, the depressing uh, elements that the, the longer the, you know, the, the COVID crisis is, is with us, the greater the number of businesses well, are Just before fail, I go back to NASA on that, and this is relevant to what the government should do to support businesses and people and the economy, how long do you expect this recession to last and how bad do you expect it to be? Nobody knows. And I mean, if anybody was to sort of sit here and say they do know that, um, you know... The, well, then on what basis should preparations be made when the budget mm. has been set out to be announced in the middle of October? Should we be doing it on the basis of a recession that is going to last for years, be very deep, and that's going to require the government to borrow large sums of money for years to come. I think as a, as, as a sort of a working uh, approach to this, I certainly think if we can get a sort of sense of when vaccines may be available, okay, and sort of to work around that notion that that will be the point at which normality can return, that will give you, uh, you know, a, 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 a certain sense of this. Um, but if I could just make one additional point, I mean, this issue is coming up a lot, you know, how long should the supports uh, continue? So I think the government have done a good job at, at, at keeping them going for quite a while and there will be difficult decisions to be made. But Michael McGrath said something very interesting at the, the economics conference that was being done online today, and it was about capital expenditure. Okay, so every recession in Ireland, okay, if you go back to the 50s, the 80s, so on and so forth, even the last one, what we've always tended to do in Ireland is that when things go bad, we cut capital expenditure, because in some senses, it's the easiest thing to do. And what that's always meant then is that as we came out of recession, there was always this tremendous blockage uh, because we hadn't been building the roads and the networks and all the other sort of things. So Michael McGrath has made a very sort of strong commitment that capital expenditure will be kept up. Uh, as I'm sure Nessa uh, would hope, I would imagine a lot of that will be in the sort of, you know, green type technologies or whatever like that, because, you know, we have to keep a, an eye on the fact that there was a whole range of other challenges uh, that the world was confronting, including climate change. Um, so th there's clearly a sort of a, a philosophy within government now that we need to spend in a healthy sort of way for a considerable duration okay, of time. Nessa, there are many people who say that the last great recession that we had, it was a wasted opportunity and that we didn't change things afterwards and we didn't invest in a new future. Is there any way that we can do that this time? Well, I, I think it has been outlined, um, an investment in projects that will not only better our country but also provide jobs and support communities would be wise. Things like retrofitting, things like rewetting bogs, um, things like infrastructure. Those are things that into the next decades will better all of our standard of living. I do think there is a balance to be struck, though, between capital expenditure and supporting people who are in those vulnerable groups, who are in the precarious work, who are, you know, disability groups um, who, of people with disabilities, um, lone parents. There will have to be um, some kind of a sense, you know, in the upcoming budget of um, caring for people, of ensuring that people don't fall through the cracks. And where will the we money for that come from? Do you see they've been borrowed money? Or is there going 
to have to be a way of raising taxes, even though Pascal Donoghue has said he doesn't want to put up income taxes? I think raising taxes at the moment would be quite difficult. Uh, I, I think that um, certainly uh, we are looking probably at... Why, sorry, why would it be difficult? Because we've just heard from Alan that there are many people who are not suffering financially as a result. The amount of money that's going into savings in this country is going up by billions every month. That's true, and I, and I think that speaks to you know some of the, the, the lack of confidence that people have in the economy that they're, they're, they're not willing to spend. Um, but I, what I do think is that we're, at the moment, we're, we're trying to calibrate a, a very uh, complex set of demands, and it's not always clear you know, who needs to be reached out to, who needs to be cared for. So I, I think at the moment, what we, we should be looking to do is uh, ensuring that you know, young people, vulnerable groups are cared for, are, are um, not uh, moving into lower or to in deeper levels of inequality and, and poverty. Um, and that will have to be a, a major part of, of the budget in October. Alan, the likelihood of a no-deal Brexit, how much more difficult does that make everything? Well, a lot more uh, difficult. Um, it, it, it was kind of strange. Um, I, I, like a lot of people, have been going along on the basis that a deal would happen. Um, so when it started emerging during the week that this may not actually be the case, I found myself having to go and dig back through ESRI reports to find out, well, what sort of uh, estimates were we giving of the effects of these sort of things? Because although we had always worked out what the effect of a no deal would be, I had always thought, well, that's just a worst case scenario. That's not going to happen. Uh, our estimates were, were, were looking at sort of G GDP being about five percentage points lower than it otherwise would be as a result of a, a, a hard uh, Brexit. But of course, the important point on this, and we're back to V's and K's, that would have been an average effect uh, across the economy. But that effect would have been much, much higher in areas, for example, the food industry, border counties. So there's specific groups will be hit much more severely than that. It's a tremendously difficult situation. Hopefully it won't be that bad. My thanks to Alan Barrett and Nasa Harrigan for joining us on the programme. So who are those at the bottom of the economic recovery, the ones left behind? Musician Mary Copeland is with us. Because Mary, what's it been like for musicians being left without gigs to perform over the last six months? It's been pretty grim, actually. Um, I think I've, I've talked about it now a few times. Um, I would have started uh, work in April. I had 15 gigs in um, England sold out. Then a series of festivals from Galway to Glastonbury to Norway, Iceland. Um, they're all gone. Everything is gone. I had released an album and I would have you know, done a lot of concerts to promote that, but that's all gone. Um, it's not just me, it's, you know, it's everybody, uh, you know that. And um, it's devastated the entire music industry. Um, we've had some help um, announced yesterday in the form of some um, money, which will go towards industry uh, and venues to get us back up and running so that they may get subventions or something to pay us. Like I'm doing two gigs tomorrow and I'm really grateful tomorrow and Saturday in the, the Mermaid Arts Centre but I'll be singing to 44 people and I will get um, a percentage of, of that 44 people. And um, I've chosen to do them because I really want to do them. I want to sing and I'll be bringing my full band and we'll be sharing the, we'll be sharing the proceeds between us. And, Mary, there's not a living to be made out of that, is there? Because it's not just you and the band, it's all the various other people who are involved in staging a show. How can you make money on an audience of 44 people? Nobody can make any money. The, the theatres um, are, are, are staying open and I guess they get paid. They're probably on um, salary, 
But the music venues around Ireland, which are the ones that have kept us going for years and years, they're not included. They haven't been included in, in opening. You have to have a theatre licence, like you have to be the Mermaid or the Town Hall or, or, or you know, the, the Drapes or something to, to, to be allowed to have 44 people. So at the moment, I'm doing the gigs at 44 people. We're doing two gigs in each place to try and, and bump the, the money up. But it's uh, it's not pretty, but it's actually a necessity. Um, the guys in my band and uh, all all of the musicians I know um, that are not like like really well off are, are in, the, in this position. Well, and can we finish on a positive note, so Mary, because you did have good news in that you did release your new album, which went straight to number one in the charts. Now, I know that won't make you a millionaire. I'm not sure how many um, th uh, uh, units you have to sell to get to be number one on iTunes, but my fans have been great. And every time it falls to number two, they shove it back up to number one. And I've been busy selling them from the house. And we've done gigs from my garden, which have been very successful, um, with live band, a full band and sound and lights. And, um, you know, we streamed them. But we can't, you can't do that forever, you know, and depend on people to give you tips, you know. We want to get back to work in a meaningful way. Well, and, I think um, we all look forward to getting the opportunity, if possible, to see you playing live and all the other musicians around the country, be it the trad groups that are in the pubs to those who play in the bigger venues. Mary Cotton, look after yourself yeah. and thank you for joining us on The Tonight Show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everyone. Bye. And that's all we have time for tonight. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow at half four. Kira Doherty will be here on Tuesday night at 10 p.m. For now, good night. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.